to turn to 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. And I'll be reading out of the ESV for this passage. If you don't have it, you can follow along on the screens. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. And with that, I give my title for today, Poor for More. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would have your way in this service. Lord, that you would speak to me and speak through me. Anoint me as I attempt to bring your word today. That your word would fall on good ground. That it would not return void but that it would affect life-changing power in this place today. Lord, I thank you in advance for what you're going to do in this place. And it's in your name we pray, the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. All right. You may be seated. So for any of us who have been living uh, any amount of time, we, we've probably heard the term karma. Said it's, a, it's a worldly concept that essentially means what, what goes around comes around. If you do good things, good things will happen. If you do bad things, then bad things will happen. And sometimes it's immediate, sometimes it takes time, but it is an inescapable fact. From the Bible, it's what we call the law of sowing and reaping that how you sow affects how you reap, that if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully, and if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. It, again, is an inescapable fact. It's something that is is taught to us as children with the idea that you are what you eat, that if you eat good things, you'll, I don't know, be good, and if you eat bad things, you'll be bad. And I, I, I see the merit of it, but I don't know what kid wants to be a broccoli. I mean, if anything, I would eat like dino bites, because then you'd become a dinosaur. And me and Jordan have tried, and it has not worked. So I guess you really are, aren't what you eat. Uh, if you were what you ate, then I would be Chick-fil-A. Uh, I, I, I work there, so it's a little better. But uh, I eat one to two meals there, five days a week, so you do the math, and I eat a lot of Chick-fil-A. And while most people's bodies are 70% water, it has been confirmed that mine is 99% Sprite. Um, really, I, I, only, I really only drink Sprite, so um, it'll probably catch up to me at some point, but 
you know, for now we get them to sponsor announcement videos. So, you know, it's working out. But no, there, there's this idea that you get out what you put in, that what you, the input affects the output, that everything in life requires effort. You know, it's been said that the best things in life require the most work, the hardest work, that good things don't happen on accident, that you have to be intentional. And so why is it any different for miracles? Because while God is both willing and able to perform miracles, there is something required from our end. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 says that, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. So I'll go ahead and spoil the big reveal of what God wants me to communicate today, that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. We just have to ask or think. Okay, we can go home. We're done. Yeah. If only. Yeah, at the end. Uh, but so the ask here found in Ephesians chapter 3, the Greek term is aheteo. And while it's mainly used in Scripture to mean ask, it also has other meanings like desire, to beg, to require, to crave, to call for. It, it signifies a deeper meaning than just a simple question, but something that is deep inside of you that you are desiring to happen. And then the think used here in the Greek is noeo, which means to understand or perceive. So said differently, what are you desiring from God, and then what are you understanding that he can do? Because wherever that line is, he can do more. But we have to set the line. My goal for today is that you leave this building with a renewed and expanded faith in God and his ability to do anything, and that this faith leads to action that will prepare this atmosphere for lives to be forever changed. All right, so let's dive into our opening story. I won't have it up on the screens, but you're more than welcome to follow along in your Bible or your device of choice. But 2 Kings chapter 4. So there's a man. He's a good man, one that was one of the sons of the prophets who feared the Lord, but he died. He passed away. And his wife, this widow, has tried everything she could to be the provider that she never thought she'd have to be. It wasn't expected of her, but now she's been thrust into that role. And she's tried everything. She's borrowed money to try and make ends meet, but the creditors are coming to take away her two sons. Everything she has left is about to be taken from her. And so she cries to Elisha. And Elijah responds and says, What shall I do for thee? Or what have you in the house? And said differently, he's asking, what do you want? And what do you have? What do you have that I can work with? What do you have that I can help you with? And she says, I don't, I don't have anything except a jar of oil. Now, this reminds me of, of Jake's message from a couple weeks ago that apart from God, we really are nothing. But with God, we can do all things. And so this jar of oil might not have been much, but in the hands of Elisha, it's the perfect instrument for a miracle. 
And I won't talk about that anymore because you can go listen to Jake's message on the podcast. Um, but so then Elisha gives her a set of tasks to do. Go outside, borrow empty vessels from all your neighbors and not too few. Go get as many vessels as you can. I'm not going to tell you why, but just go get these vessels. And then begin to pour. Pour this little jar of oil that's not really worth anything, but it's going to fill up these vessels. And it's going to fill up one and another one because he says, when one is full, set it aside. And so she goes, and I can imagine her and her sons going to all the neighbors, frantically knocking on the doors. Hey, I need all your empty vessels. And I can imagine some people looked at her weird, said, well, why, like, why do you need those? You don't want anything full? I know your situation. I know what's about to happen. Are you sure you don't want more than just an empty vessel? But she followed the word of Elisha and gets as many empty vessels as she can, and then she starts pouring. And one vessel gets filled, and another gets filled, and another, and another. And eventually, every single vessel that she has is filled. And it was enough to pay off her debt and for her and her sons to live on the leftovers of a miracle. So I have three main takeaways from this story. The first is that she had to ask. Elisha, to my knowledge, was not aware of her situation. While Elisha was a man of God, he does not seem to be granted omniscient powers like God does. And so even though God knows every need before we ask it, Elisha didn't. So she had to ask, or else nothing would have happened. And then Elisha asked her questions. What do you want? And what have you in the house? What do you have? What do you want? What do you have? And she has to answer. She could have said, well, I've got nothing. Why do you think I asked you? But instead, she rightfully assesses her situation and provides the instrument for which this miracle would come forth. And then the third thing is she had to act. Is that Elisha gave her a list of tasks to go outside, borrow vessels, pour the, joy, pour the oil into the vessels, and that would make the miracle happen. Now, she could have said, I didn't ask you to make me do something. I just asked for help. I just asked for a miracle. But instead, she follows the word of Elisha and acts on it. Because actions reveal beliefs. Not what you say, not what you post, not any of those things, but how you act determines what you really believe. And this is found in Scripture in James chapter 2, verse 17, that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You can have all the faith you want, but if you don't do anything about it, you really don't have faith. James says later, he says, what good is it? What good is faith if it doesn't have works? We can come to church services, and we can have faith, and then nothing happens because we're not willing to act on it. This idea that we have to ask, answer, and or act is littered throughout Scripture. James chapter 4 and 2 tells us that you do not have because you do not ask. It's, it's simple. If you asked, you would have, but you're not asking, so you're not having. 
Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, he says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. There's no limit on this. There's no clarification. You just have to ask, seek, and knock. And if you do do those things, you will receive, find, and the doors will be opened. Because in in the equation of miracles, there's really two things. God's power is there. He has that exceeding abundantly power. We sang about it today that he's more than able. And and we sang about all the miracles that he's able to do. So, So God's got his part of the equation covered. What's missing is our part. Because all we have to do is ask, seek, and knock, and the miracle's going to happen. It will happen. But it's on us. The responsibility is on us. Another example of this is found in Judges chapter 1, verse 12. It says, And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Oxa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Oxa, his daughter, for a wife. And then verse 14, there's, there's a lot going on here. It says, When she came to him, so Oxa is coming to her new husband, Othniel. She urged him to ask her father for a field. He says, hey, you just captured this area. You've been deemed worthy to be my husband. Now go ask your father-in-law for a field. But then it says, and she dismounted from her donkey. So Othniel apparently didn't have the courage to go ask his father-in-law. And so it falls to Oxa. But she goes, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? I just married you off. I just got rid of you. What do you, what do you want? Why are you, why are you coming back? And verse 15, she said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. Because during that time, land without water was pretty much useless. And so she goes to her father courageously and acting out of custom because all Caleb really owed her was a gift, a jewelry, a a sum of money. But instead, it says he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So because she asked, she got more than what she really wanted, more than what she really needed. But she had to ask. Elisha saw this happen firsthand in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9. It says, when, when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. Elijah is about to be taken into heaven. He's one of two men in the Bible not to physically die along with Enoch, but they were taken to be with the Lord. And, and so he knows his time has come. And so he asked Elijah, what shall I do for you? Or what do you want? What do you want, Elisha? And Elisha says, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And verse 10, Elijah says, you have asked a hard thing. Because Elijah, Elijah had a lot of spirit on him. This is the same Elijah who caused the rain to cease for three years in Israel, and who called fire down from heaven to prove that the Lord God is the Lord God of Israel. 
So Elisha wants double that. Elisha says, hey, what you've got, I want more. And Elijah says a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it. And he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. So, again, Elisha asks or answers and tells Elijah what he really wants. And then he has to act. He has to make sure that he sees Elijah to receive the double portion. And he sees him, and wouldn't you know it, Elijah performed eight miracles in Scripture, recorded to have performed eight miracles. Can anybody guess how many Elisha recorded? Sixteen, or double. So, again, Elisha asked, he acted, and he received. Joshua asked the sun to stand still, and it did. I mean, a crazy thing. I, I would never think of that. Uh, you know, hey, God, make the sun stand still. Like, you know, but Joshua did. He asked, and it happened. Naaman, the great man of Syria, goes to Elisha to see how he can be healed, and is told to dip seven times in the dirty, stinky Jordan River. And although he scoffs at the idea at first, he goes, and he dips once, and nothing happens. And he dips twice, and nothing happens. And he keeps dipping, because why not? What has he got to lose? And on the seventh dip, he is made whole. He asked, and he acted, and a miracle happened. Samson, despite all his flaws and mistakes, at the end of his life, asked God to grant him the strength one more time, the strength that had marked his youth. And then, believing that he had been given that strength, he acted. He pushed on the pillars of that temple and killed more Philistines in his death than he did in his entire life because he asked and he acted. When Jesus was on the earth and was performing countless miracles, miracles that we couldn't even write about if we tried to write them all, he did a lot of the same things. In Matthew chapter 9, he, he meets these blind men and he asks them, Do you believe? And they had to answer. They said yes, and he healed them. In Mark chapter 8, he heals a blind man, and he asks him, well, how do you see now? And the blind man, in an honest answer to Jesus, says, I see people as trees. Basically says, you did a good job, but it's not fully done. Had the courage to tell Jesus that he wanted more, that his miracle was not complete. And so Jesus honors that heals him, and his sight is fully restored. In Luke chapter 18, he meets up with blind Bartimaeus, screaming, causing a scene, and Jesus goes up to him and says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you, what do you want? And blind Bartimaeus tells him, because he could have just asked for money, he could have just asked for a way to make it through the next day, but instead he asked for his sight to be restored, and wouldn't you know it, Jesus restores his sight. And then finally, in John chapter 5, the man at the pool in Bethesda, who had been laying on a mat for 38 years, watching person after person receive the miracle that he felt he deserved. And Jesus goes up to him and has the gall to ask him, do you want to be healed? And the man says, yes, and he's healed. But he still had to answer. I know that you know, 
Hopefully you're getting it by now. But there's requirements on our part that we have to ask and we have to act. And if we do that, God will come through. I'll offer a cautionary tale and it's found in 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 14. Elisha's really cool. I'm just going to throw that out there. He, he is one of the cool prophets. He actually is part of one of my favorite stories of the Bible. So he's walking into this town, and these two boys make fun of him for being bald. They call him Baldy. And apparently in a symbol to teach us to respect authority, call some bears, and they take care of these kids. And uh, when I was in college, I went to a school whose mascot was the bears, and so I had that verse in my Instagram bio, followed by Go Bears. So, and uh, I thought it was funny. But, uh, but no, Elisha, Elisha is, is a, cool, a cool dude, cool prophet in the Bible. But we find him here in 2 Kings chapter 13. He's fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die. And so Joash, the king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because that's the exact thing Elisha said to Elijah when he was being taken from him. So Joash is invoking that memory to Elisha and saying, hey, I want something from you before you go. I want something from you. And so, verse 15, Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So the king took a bow and arrows. Verse 16, then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow. And the king draws it, and Elijah laid his hands on the king's hands. And then Elisha says, open the window eastward, and he opens it. And Elisha says, shoot, and he shoots. And then Elijah, or Elisha says, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. So Joash asks, and now he acts and follows these tasks from Elisha and is guaranteed victory. But then in verse 18, Elisha has more instructions, or Elisha has more instructions. He says, take the arrows, and so Joash takes them, and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And so Joash strikes them three times and stops. We don't know why he stopped at three, why he he didn't keep going, but he stops at three. In verse 19, it says, Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike them only three times. Because you weren't willing to put in the work, you're guaranteed a partial victory. A partial miracle. And so I ask us today, what things are we okay with only half a miracle? What have we grown comfortable with a situation that was never meant for us to stay in? A loved one just coming to church but not being fully sold out? A job that pays the bills but keeps you from your family and your church? A healing but not wholeness and salvation? Not completely addicted, but still struggling? What do you want? 
What do you want? I probably could have titled the message that, but that seemed a little aggressive. So I figured I'd surprise you all with it. But really, what do you want? God's here. We've seen him move. He's moved already, and he's ready to move again. So what do you want? That's it. What do you want? What do you want God to do for you? And if you ask and you act, God will move. As I come to a close, if the musicians want to make their way, I'd be remiss not to talk about the greatest miracle, salvation. Because as, as cool as these other miracles that we talked about and the miracles we sang about, the greatest miracle that has ever existed is salvation. It's the greatest one, hands down. Because we deserve an eternal death in a fiery hell, but instead we have the option to choose eternal life with our Savior. That despite us being nothing, being dust, and being fallen humankind, we can be saved. We can experience wholeness. We can experience unity. We can experience eternal life. And thankfully for us, the plan of salvation is laid out in Scripture. It's right there for us. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells us that you have to be born again to enter into the kingdom of God and clarifies that you have to be born of water and of the Spirit. He later says that you have to be baptized, you have to believe and be baptized to be saved. That belief enough, that belief is not enough. That belief enough will not get you saved. But that there's action required from that belief. And so Peter, who's given the keys to the kingdom, the keys to the church, preaches a message on the day of Pentecost that pricks the hearts of those who heard it. It convicts them. And instead of just clapping a little bit, making a half-hearted effort and go home, they ask, what shall we do? All right, Peter, we get it. You've preached to us, but what shall we do? What, what shall we do in response to the conviction that I'm feeling right now? And so Acts 2.38 tells us, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's right there. Repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost. Repenting is a military term that means to turn around. It's more than just saying, I'm sorry. It's more than just asking God to forgive us. But it is a complete 180 that instead of heading down the broad way that leads to destruction, I'm going to head down the straight and narrow that leads to life. That I realize that God is calling me to a higher life, and I'm going to follow that. Baptism is not just taking a bath, it's not just getting wet, but it is an act of faith, an act of faith that we believe that when we go down in that water, that symbolically Jesus' blood is washing away our sins, the remission of sins, that we, those sins are removed from us, that no matter what you've done 
or how long you've been doing it, that those sins can be washed away in, in one act, in one act. I know we already have somebody being baptized today, and that's awesome because she's taken that step of faith that Jesus can wash away our sins. We can be a new, a new man, a new person when we come out of the water. And then finally, the gift of the Holy Ghost is, is God's Spirit coming to dwell inside of us. The plan of salvation follows the gospel message, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Repentance is dying to yourself. It's dying to your flesh. Baptism is burying your sins so that you don't have to think about them anymore and you don't have to worry about them anymore. And so the Holy Ghost is resurrection. It's new life. It's a new birth. You truly become a new creation, and God's Spirit dwells inside of you and unites you with Him forever and ever. And it says there that it's the gift of the Holy Ghost. It's a gift. You know, my birthday's coming up, and that's not a plug. You don't have to get me anything. Um, but imagine if I asked for something, and somebody gave it to me, and then I never opened it. It could be the coolest thing in the world. But if I never opened it, it wouldn't do me any good. And I could have asked, but if I never acted, then I wouldn't receive it. And so, although God wants the Holy Ghost for you more than you could ever imagine, you still have to ask for it, and you still have to receive it. You have to come with the expectation that God wants you to have the Holy Ghost. So this is not something he's dangling. This is not something out of reach, but that is something for every single person in the room today. That God is not willing that any should perish, but that he sent himself in flesh, died on the cross, so that we could spend eternity with him. So what do you want? I hope that at some point you started thinking of some things in your head that you're really not okay with. Situations at home, situations at work, strongholds present in your life marriages or families that are broken or on their way to being broken? What do you want? God's here today, and he's more than able. And we've seen him move, and we know that he is too good to not believe. God's been too good to me for me not to believe what he can do. And so if you don't believe, you can borrow mine. You can borrow my faith. You can borrow my belief. And I ask that you act on it right now. So if you'd all would stand with me. And before we, we come to the altars, I want us to all repent. To take that first step. And we're all going to do it together so we're all on the same playing field. So no matter how you came to church today, whether using heavenly language or other language, that we're all on the same level. We're all on the same playing field. So let's take a moment right now and repent.